Acts 16, 16 through 40. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved you and your household. Hmm. Amen. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come take, them, take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came out and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. So when they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray one more time, friends. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who is near and not far. We thank you that you are the God who embodies all truth. And we thank you, God, that that truth saves. It saves Lord, in this moment, we want to take just a second before we continue with this service uh, to remember what we will celebrate tomorrow. Those who have taken the call on their lives to stand in the gap for others and when so necessary to save.
We thank you for a Memorial Day weekend, Jesus, where we can remember those who have gone before us. We thank you for those who have served. And we thank you for those who did so because they knew that the call to serve was just the call that you constantly put forth, Jesus, to be a living sacrifice. Jesus, thank you for those brave men and women. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And most importantly, thank you for you. We love you. and We're so glad that you love us. And to your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, friends. So for the final time, good morning. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who I have not had the chance and privilege to meet, my name is Tommy Bello. I am the youth and young adult pastor here. And I have the privilege of bringing you the word this morning. And this word is quite a doozy. There's a lot going on to it. So strap in and buckle up because we have a lot to tear through. But to start off, I want to talk about an idea that we are mostly familiar with, which is called a wake-up call, right? For those of you who work early mornings, you might have an alarm, and that's your wake-up call. When Michelle and I were first married, I had two different jobs I was working, and I would have to wake up at 4 o'clock to get to my first job. And I'm not a morning person, so I hated that wake-up call. But then there are wake-up calls like alarms in the afternoon for those of you who work nights and need to make sure you wake up on time just like the morning people do to get to your jobs. There are wake-up calls when you are driving behind the car or you're driving behind the wheel and you start to doze off a little bit and the rumble strips or the honking of a horn wakes you up and that's your wake-up call. And there are some other wake-up calls that we kind of run into in life. There is the first time that uh, for those of you who are parents, that you became pregnant with your first child. That is a wake-up call because now your life is completely different. <laughs> there is the wake-up call that sometimes we dread having, but, but most of us probably have had when a close friend that we trust sits us down and say, hey, what you're doing is not okay. And we need to talk about how that's going to change. That's a wake-up call. And then there are the worst kinds of wake-up calls that you wake up to the news at like 4.30 in the morning, for example with a phone call from a dear friend saying, hey, another one of our friends is dead. Those are the worst wake-up calls. Why are we talking about that? Is this passage so grim as that? No, not necessarily, but again, understanding this idea that we mostly live through life and we experience wake-up calls. And they all serve one purpose, just one, no matter what is the circumstance, no matter what is actually happening. There's one purpose. They want to get your attention. Right? The alarm that wakes you up for work is trying to make sure you don't stay asleep. The friend who has a tough conversation is trying to make sure you change the path of the trajectory that your life is going on. Wake-up calls serve to get our attention. And friends, this passage is a wake-up call, believe it or not. But what is it waking us up to? What is it trying to gather our attention to? What is it trying to make sure we don't miss? Oops, we'll get there. As we've been talking about the mission of the Spirit, as we've been moving through the book of Acts, today the mission of the Spirit, the line, so you will, the point that we will break down is this. The mission of the Spirit is to display the full power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's full breadth and width and height and depth. And this gospel that we're going to look at today, this timeless saving truth saves us and it keeps saving 
It saves us and it keeps saving. Keep that in the back of your mind as we will look at what is this thing that Jesus is trying to get our attention to. It is this good, good gospel. Friends, we see it play out in three ways today in our passage that we're going to work through. This gospel saves us from evil. This gospel saves us from ourselves. And this gospel saves us from sin. Most of us are acquainted with that last one, and we will certainly get there. But we're moving through it in this order because that's how it's revealed in the passage. And so that is what we will dive into. So are you ready? I hope you are. At the very beginning of the passage, we see that there is a slave girl, and it is said that she has a spirit of divination. The word divination in English translates to, in its original Greek, what looks like the snake we are all familiar with, python. But it actually is pronounced puthon. And believe it or not, there's a very interesting story as to why that is. There's a very interesting story as to why this girl said to have a spirit of divination. You see, Putho, even though it looks like, again, Pytho, is a region in the country of Greece. It is known in modern-day terms as Delphi. It's a World Heritage Site. It's actually a protected area for people to go and you know, learn history and travel and all that kind of jazz. Part of the mythos behind it is that the ancient Greeks believed that at this place called Putho was the center of the world that the world would, result, would revolve on the axis of this location. This was the center of the world, geographically speaking, and it was also the entrance to the middle of the world. So it was a very important spot, especially as they believed in a pantheon of gods that lived above them and amongst them and below them. This place was a central gathering place, so to speak, a entryway and an exit thoroughway through the bowels of the earth. And at this place called Putho, there was an oracle, a seer, somebody who was supernaturally endowed to be able to give really good advice that was always on point, but also see the future and make predictions about it. And so you can imagine this is somebody that's in high demand. This oracle for decades and for actually centuries was always a woman, and she was named after the region she would live in called Pythia. Pythia, the oracle, was guarded by a snake called Pythos or Puthos. Pythia, this is going to sound a little gross, but it's the story. Pythia was able to, at some point, get her supernatural powers because Apollo, one of the Greek gods, the sons of Zeus, killed the snake, and she inhaled the decomposing sense of his body. And that's what gave her her supernatural powers. Yeah, no thanks. But this oracle was long sought after. And as legend goes, people would go to her and do what Apollo did, the god that, quote-unquote, liberated her. They would go and they would bathe in the scents and the smells of what was at this region and in hopes that they could be possessed by her spirit to be able to see the future. They did this for centuries. People would take pilgrimages to Pythos, Puthos, and then eventually Delphi. Why does that matter? That is where we get the word divination from. It's actually part of the root of why we get the word python and serpent, this legend. And so the people in Philippi, in our passage, when they would see this slave girl, that's what they would think of. Oh, she has the spirit of Pythia in her. They, she has the Puthos spirit in her. That is why she's able to see the future. 
Let me make it very clear. She's possessed. I guarantee you not of her own doing. And definitely not of her own willingness. Because she's a slave. It's a bit different than modern day slaves. But she's still owned by other people. And she's still used for their monetary gain. They parade her out as if she's a circus act. So that she can tell the future for a few copper coins of which none make into her pocket. It's a double entrapment. It is darkness and evil fully on display. And so when Paul and Silas come into town, there's something that stirs in her, something at the very depths of her soul, that she is then able to cry out continuously, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That's what she declares to them as she's following around Paul and Silas until, and this is my favorite detail of this passage, Paul just gets annoyed. Paul's literally like, I'm just fed up with this. Like, you're annoying me in the name of Jesus Christ. Stop. (laughs) And it works. I wish I could do that with my kids sometimes. (laughs) Just, you keep fighting in the name of Jesus. Stop. (laughs) And they're just like, and I'm like, cool, yes. (laughs) But Paul picks up on that she has this spirit that has oppressed her. And so Paul frees her from darkness and evil by the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, we are looking at the gospel that saves us from evil and darkness. This timeless truth that is embodied in this word but is lived out in the flesh and in the blood of Jesus Christ. This timeless truth that is above all else and to all things must submit to it. This timeless truth, this powerful gospel makes everything bend its knee to it, especially darkness and evil. It does not take that much of a good reading to realize that this Bible we read and the people who lived in that time had a very concrete understanding of the supernatural around them. This stuff was not just mysticism and fairy tales for them. It's stuff that they lived because they knew the supernatural God that was for them. And friends, that's still true today. How do we know that? First John 3.8 where the Apostle John flat out says that part of what Jesus came to do was to, quote, destroy the works of the devil. It's kind of hard to misinterpret that, to be honest. But what else? How else did Paul knew this? How else could Paul have eyes to see what was going on in front of him? Because I bet you, just like it is today, some people saw that slave girl and thought she's just getting really lucky with all her predictions. And some of them saw her and said, I don't know what's going on there, but it's definitely not natural, and I definitely don't have to do anything about it. Paul had eyes to see and understood what was going on in that girl's life, even as she was annoying him. And he did something about it. And he knew he could do something about it. How? Is this one of those things that we just kind of like guess and put, put together our best details that Paul knew how, to, knew how to do something about it? No, Paul knew how to do something about it straight from the mouth of Jesus. How do we know? In Acts 26, Paul is re-accounting when Jesus first meets with him. It's a retelling of the story of Acts 9, the, way, uh, the Damascus Road experience that Paul has. And he says this, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick back against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This should sound familiar. 
But rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And in case you can't read this, because I didn't know red would show up so bad against blue. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Jesus says that directly to Paul. Directly. Paul doesn't have to guess part of what his mission is going to be. He doesn't have to guess as to what Jesus' mission was. We do not have to guess as to what part of our mission is as part of the same church that Paul helps found. Darkness and evil run amok, friends. Run amok. And we are called to stand in the gap. We are called to see by the power of Jesus Christ and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, see those chains and bonds broken to see the kingdom of darkness pushed back inevitably and forever. But do we get why this is so important? Do we get why we have to come to an understanding, to a wake-up call, that this gospel saves us from darkness and evil? I'll tell you one reason why this is so important. Because if we sat down and thought about our lives long enough, you realize that there are things that have happened in your life that have no natural explanation. That try as you might, there's nothing that this earth and that humans have ever thought of that could possibly seek to explain what you experienced. None. Live long enough, you will have that story. I've heard some of your stories. You've heard some of mine. Live long enough, you will have that story. And that leaves you with a question then that your soul is going to want an answer to. What the heck just happened? Question marks. We hate question marks. We want resolution, we want clarity, we want solutions, we want to be able to know what was going on. Sometimes we get to, sometimes we don't. But in the area of where things are supernatural, or we, at the very least we can come to understand that they're outside of the norm, our Bibles and its original audience has a very clear answer for to us, excuse me, for us, that there's more going on than the five senses can perceive. And that's a reality that we deal with more often than not. We have said many times from this pulpit before that, yes, the supernatural can be out there. And we've been talking about it because it shows up in the book of Acts time and time again. And sometimes we walk out of here with different, differing views of that. And that's okay. We go, I don't know if that's actually true or not. Or I'm unsure. Or I'm definitely sure. Or now I'm more sure. But this idea that there's a world that we can interact with that is not available to the five senses is something that you experience every single day. And I can prove it to you. You can't see thoughts on an MRI. You can't see dreams show up in an MRI. And yet nobody on the planet would dare say that those things are false. There's an entire world happening in our heads. Yes, with the neurons and the synapses and all those electricity, brain, you know, it's all going crazy. We can detect it, but we can't see it, ever. And people, they've tried for a very long time, and they're still trying to catch that stuff on camera. And yet they're not. Friends, we interact with a world that is beyond our five senses every single day. And that's why this is so important. Because sometimes that world is for your good. Right? The Holy Spirit, Jesus, they're angels. And sometimes that world is not for your good. And it seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. That matters. That matters. You don't think every deer... Every rabbit, every squirrel that is hunted as prey would want 
to know ahead of time when someone was hunting them? This is the wake-up call. But the gospel saves. We don't have to fret or despair or not have hope. We are not puffing this up to make it seem like some grand enemy that is inconquerable. All you have to do is read Revelation. God makes it very clear Satan has no hold on what he's going to do with him. Amen. Amen indeed. But friends, if we do not let this gospel come into us and through us and overflow out of us, it will have its way with us instead of the other way around. Because this gospel saves from darkness and evil. But then the story keeps going. The slave owners, once they realize their pun intended cash cow has dried up, they complain. They lodge a formal complaint with the city magistrates. And the complaint that they give is this. Oh, Paul and Silas, these men, they're teaching us to do things that we're not supposed to do. It's unlawful as Roman citizens. Guys, that's laughable. History has proven time and time again the Roman Empire is one of the most debaucherous civilizations to ever exist. Do you know what was fair game to the Romans? Everything. Everything. <laughs> Literally everything. It's kind of disgusting. And so for these guys to turn around and say, Paul and Silas want to make us do things that are not okay, it's just like, wow. Okay, you're looking for an excuse. You just want to get them in trouble. Why? Because they took away your money. They took apart the God that you actually follow and serve. Mammon. They took out money in your pocket, and that's all you care about. You don't care about the girl. You don't care about Paul and Silas. They just care about their greed. And so it is a complaint that is shallow, very, very shallow, but enough to win over the city magistrates who probably were getting some of the money. So off Paul and Silas go to jail after having been beaten, of course. It reminds me of that time Pastor Will said, when we're confronted with the truth, we either accept it or we turn violent against it. You know how many times this has happened in the book of Acts so far? <laughs> how many times Paul and Silas, or Paul, excuse me, has gotten beaten by this point? We're only on Acts 16. There's 26 chapters, 28 chapters, excuse me. A lot more to go. But these guys end up in jail. And when they end up in jail, we see this really interesting detail that, I'm going to be honest, ultimately doesn't serve the point we're going after today, but it sets up a very interesting context. Paul and Silas are singing. They're praising God past midnight. To have faith like that. But it, it brings up two funny details that are going to matter in just a second for this context. One, it says that the prisoners were listening, which means they weren't sleeping because Paul and Silas are singing. Do you think they liked Paul and Silas in this moment? No, <laughs> they most certainly did not, but they're curious, which is why they're listening. But two, when this earthquake happens, you have to imagine that this isn't a jail like we envision. It doesn't have solid four walls and all that kind of stuff. This jail was most likely in a cave system which is why an earthquake would be especially scary. But this earthquake happens, and all the shackles fall off, and all the doors swing open, oh, just randomly. And they can all walk out. And you know what must have been the first thought on those prisoners' minds? We have a way out. Let's take it. And what does the scripture tell us? Paul and Silas says, jailer, we're still all here. And if I could see the look on their faces, because they probably looked at Paul and Silas like, what are you doing? <laughs> That was our out, and you just outed us, <laughs> right? But those two details matter as we now get to this part of the story where it helps us understand how the gospel saves us from ourselves. 
saves us from ourselves. Paul and Silas absolutely save the jailer from himself in a very literal way. The man decides that he thinks, again, no electricity, so that's when, they, when it says they have to turn on the lights, they're lighting torches. It's all dark. All he knows is there's an earthquake, and he can probably hear the swinging metal doors and the loose metal chains. So he's thinking, oh, my prisoners have escaped. Uh, any of you who have worked long enough, you know that you're going to mess up sometimes as your job. You're just going to mess up. It's okay. You're human. Most of us, I would hope, this is not a joke, most of us, I hope, do not think that when we mess up at work, our only out, our, the only course of action is to kill ourselves. That's literally what this guy was about to do. When it says he's going to drew his, drew his sword and going to impale himself on it, he'd rather kill himself than deal with his bosses. What does that tell you about the Roman Empire? The one that, you know, they're making us commit unlawful customs and practices like they just complained five verses ago. But Paul and Silas intervene. Paul cries out, hey, no, please don't do that. We're all here. And the question is, why? Why did they intervene? It seems like it could be a very obvious answer because they're decent human beings. Because they don't want to see this man kill himself. You look at this question, you go, well, why do we have to answer that question? Isn't that kind of obvious? And in one sense it is, and in another sense it's not. All you have to do is go back to Acts 7 and back, back to Acts 7 and Acts 8, and you will be reminded that Paul, when he was originally still going by Saul, was a murderer. Given the stamp of approval by the Jewish High Council to go find followers of the way, drag them out of their homes, put them on public trials, and so if he so felt so necessary, execute them. What about any of that does that scream, this man is a decent human being? None of it. But that's not the same Paul we encounter in Acts 16. Because that Paul has been met by the gospel. Has been met by the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Has been covered by the blood of the Lamb. That Paul, and yes, that Silas, have had their hearts changed from the inside out. All you have to do is look at human history and see that, yes, we all claim to, you know, as a general group of people, we all claim to be good people. We all claim to be halfway decent. The society we call humanity is getting better and better as time goes on. All you have to do is look at the news. All you have to do is look at history. It's the opposite. There is ample proof, unfortunately. There is ample proof that quite often we are the Levites and the priests seeing the man in the pit and we walk by and say that's somebody else's problem. It's not mine and I don't have to deal with it or they're not worth sacrificing for. That was Paul. That was Silas before Jesus. That was most of us before Jesus. That was all of us before Jesus. But they intervene and this intervention speaks to a heart change. The gospel saved Paul from himself. It saved him from being the kind of man that deep down he never wanted to be. It saved him from being the kind of man who lived a life that he was horrendous. And he reflects upon that in all of his letters. In 1 Timothy 1.15, for example, he testifies to the kind of man he was before Jesus met him and applied the saving grace of the gospel to his life. He calls himself the chief of sinners. Not that he's actually more sinful than any other person, but he is so depraved. He is so come face to face with his ugliness. He says, and Jesus saved me from that? Holy cow. 
Paul himself was saved from himself. And that is what he is now offering to this man. Friends, let's have a real honest moment, which requires a sip of water. How often do we sometimes wake up in the morning and we don't like what we see? Not because it's anything to do with the physicality of your body. But you look back at the person in the mirror and you realize that person is not who I thought I'd end up becoming. How many times do we find ourselves at the bottom of a hole and we realize the hands that dug it were our own? How many times do we realize we're in chains and we're shackled? Nothing seems to be going right in our lives. And we're definitely not the sole reason that we're in those chains. That's not what I'm trying to say. But we become very aware of the part that we have played. Friends, how often do we wake up and we realize, I want this to be different. I want my life to be different. Paul, in Romans 7, testifies to this reality when he says, I wake up and I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I do want to do. And this tension just is dragging him back and forth and we can understand that. Our souls are desperate from something, for something, to save us from ourselves and to save us from those who would treat us the same way that we sometimes treat ourselves. How often have you heard this in some way, shape, or form? If I talked to you the way you talked about yourself, you wouldn't be my friend. If I talked to you the same way you talk about yourself, you would not be my friend. That's a wake-up call. And the gospel can do something about that. Paul and Silas are living testimony. And this man, this jailer, is now going to join their number. Him and his whole household. He is saved from himself. And now then being saved into something much bigger and much grander. The jailer is so afraid that he thinks suicide is the best option. Why? We talked about the Roman Empire part for a second. But also this. He has come to a realization that all is not well. And that can't be his reality anymore. There is a hope that his soul has been looking for for a very long time. And with an earthquake and with two prisoners who don't escape, somehow he finds it. And he realizes, my life as it exists must change. And by God's grace, it now can change. Literally, by God's grace. And that's why he then turns around and asks Paul and Silas, did you not catch that this seems to be kind of an interesting question? The jailer is asking the prisoners, what must I do to be saved? What? The jailer is asking the prisoners who are, in theory, in jail for a crime they commit, which means they're not free men. There is no saving hope and grace for them. Asks them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? In a moment, he realizes that the call of the Holy Spirit is tugging on his heartstrings. It is stirring up the stuff that he wants to get in and out of him. And he realizes that there is a hope that he has been longing for. And it's Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus does what Jesus does best. And Jesus does what only Jesus can do. And he works through Paul and Silas that they may speak the word of the Lord to this man. Praise God indeed. They speak the word of the Lord to him, and this brings us to that final point. This is not just the gospel that saves us from evil and darkness or saves us from ourselves. It saves us from our sins. This man hears the good news, maybe for the first time, 
that Jesus Christ came to do something for him that he could not do for himself. That all of the turbulence he was experiencing in his life and in his soul could be brought back all the way to Genesis 3. When the world went asunder. When the world went wrong. And he heard for the very first time the good news that Jesus said, I came to do something about that. And at that point, I did do something about it. And that grace, that merit, that love can and is for you, O Philippian jailer. And he hears that good news and he realizes that love and that sacrifice, that lordship of Jesus Christ is the thing that his soul not just wants, because our souls were designed for Jesus, and not just what it wants, it's what it needs. It needs it more than air and water and shelter and community. It needs it more than a safe place to sleep. It needs it more than a wife to give him a good night kiss when he comes home. He needs it. He needs it. And he rejoices because he has found it. Friends, this gospel saves. This gospel saves. And it keeps saving. It's not done. And it never has been done, and it will not be done again until the whole earth bows its knees to the King Jesus and says, you and you alone are worthy of our praise. You and you alone are worthy of all that we have and all that we are. You sit on the throne of heaven, and you belong there, and it is good that you are there. And thank you for loving us. Friends, it is this gospel that he is confronted with. And so have we found this saving grace has captivated our hearts? Are you desperate for this gospel? Are you desperate for this saving grace? I'm not, I'm, listen, I'm not just talking to the people in the room who may or may not have followed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I'm definitely talking to those people, but I'm not just talking to those people. I'm talking to all of us and you folks online. Has this gospel captivated us? I don't care if you've been following Jesus for five minutes or 500 years if you're somehow that old. Has this gospel captivated you? Has it filled you from the inside out? Do you know and sense the person of the Holy Spirit unfolding it day after day in your heart and in your lives and in your mind and in your actions? Do you see how this gospel drives you forward? Has it captivated you? Has it won you over? Because it wants to, and it needs to, and it can. All you have to do is ask Jesus to let it be so and trust that he will. Friends, where is your wake-up call today? For some of us, it is this reality that this gospel conquers evil and darkness. And that there is something afoot in your life that by God's grace does not have to be any longer. And maybe you want him to do something about it. The great answer is Jesus says, yes, I will do something about it. For some of us, this gospel changes what we ourselves cannot change. There's a predicament, a reality, a, a something in our lives that we want to see shifts, whether we're actually still following Jesus yet or not. That's the third point, so leave that there for a second. But whether, we want, whether we're following Jesus or not, we want to see something shift. And it's not shifting. It's not changing. And you have to look in the mirror one more day in your life and see the person that you are, you're going to lose it. Where is this gospel wanting to change something about yourself for the glory of God and for the good of others? But yes, and ultimately, these two don't matter, to be quite honest, unless this gospel has cleansed our hearts and ensured our future. Because the gospel can kick out evil and darkness all it wants. But if your heart and soul don't belong to Jesus, it's coming right back in. 
It is. Jesus speaks to that, actually, in the Gospels. And if this gospel wants to change something about us, we will never actually let it do that. We'll never actually be yielded to the work of the Holy Spirit unless we trust him with our lives. It's like getting into an Uber, and you immediately look at the driver, and you're like, I don't trust you to drive. (laughs) Why would you stay in the car? I hope you wouldn't. But that's the point I'm getting at. Why would you ever trust Jesus can do anything about your present if he can't do something about your past and your future? The present is the thing that is most visceral to us. It is the thing that we experience the most because we only live in the present, second by second. The past we carry and remember, and the future we hope and long for. But those are things that aren't in the now. They're things that pain us or worry us. They're things that we delight to look forward to and, and, I'm sorry, back to and forward to. But there are things we don't live in now. We can't change those things. We can only change the present. So why would you ever trust Jesus to do something about the thing here and now when if you don't trust him to do anything with your past or your future? The answer is he won't. And so yes, this third one is the linchpin. It is the first place we must start and say, Jesus, cleanse me, search me and know me, my God. See if there's any fault within me and lead me in the way of everlasting, like David says in Psalm 139. Lead me in that everlasting way. Bring me down that gospel road. Lead me to the old rugged cross where you died for me. Lead me into that love that saves me from the thing that would keep me from you. And then from there, keep saving me. Keep saving me. Keep changing me. Keep making me more like you, Jesus. Give me my mission. Give me my purpose. Give me my value and my identity. Save me from the things that would harm me if and ever that is included in me. And save me from the things that are my enemies from the very beginning of time until you come and conquer them permanently. Save me from the things that hate me and only want my harm and foul. Save me and keep saving me. And friends, watch as he does. Watch as he does. The beautiful thing about a sermon like this is I don't have to own any of this. It's actually not up to me or up to any of us individually to make this come true. And that is good. That is a breath of fresh air. It is on the shoulders of the one who carried that cross. But friends, he has strong shoulders. He does not drop that cross. He does not drop you. Thank you indeed. Will you trust him to carry you today? In any of these ways or all of these ways, will you trust him that he can save, that is timeless truth, that is good, good gospel, wins the day and keeps winning. It saves and it keeps Saving. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you for that cross on which you died. But we we thank you that you did not stay dead. We thank you for the freedom that slave girl found. We thank you for the freedom that jailer and his whole family found, the whole gospel brought to a whole family, the party those angels must have thrown in heaven when they trusted you, Jesus. Lord, today we simply ask, Holy Spirit, would you keep doing the work you have been doing? Would you keep doing the work in our hearts that you have longed to do? We trust you and surrender that to you, O Jesus. Keep working as Holy Spirit. The parts where we are sensitive have a gentle touch. The parts where we are stubborn, would you have a firm grasp? 
The parts where we need your hope, overflow us with it. The parts where we need your joy, overflow us with it. The parts where we need your assurance, your friendship, your companionship, overflow us with it. Jesus, the scriptures say that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the mighty God, the Ancient of Days, our Prophet, our King, our Lord, our friend, our Abba. Be all those things to us, Jesus. That is what the gospel is. You and your timeless truth lived out in the flesh and now carried out by your spirit. This gospel, would it captivate us this day, Jesus? Would it captivate us? Would we trust you no matter what area of our life you're bringing up right now? And I trust that you are. Would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to not self-protect and self-numb to avoid or to run away? Would you help us to just metaphorically and or literally be on our knees, Jesus, and say, I need you to save me. I need you to keep saving. I need you, Jesus. And I praise you, Jesus, like we're about to praise you now because you have and you will and you will keep doing so. Oh, Jesus, we love you. And we are so glad, so glad You love us. It's in your name we pray.